I hope you all are doing well, and I know there's some uneasiness in the world today, and you can't really turn on the TV without seeing the same thing over and over again. But um, we're here to get the Word of God into our hearts, and, and I think it's going to even help us, well, it will help us in this situation that we find ourselves in and, and, and what's going on. And, um, but I know Jason already said it. I'm going to say it again. Congratulations. Hannah, see you here. And Taylor, congrats. And all the other ladies, you can pass the message on to them. My pastor says congratulations. That it's going to mean a lot to them. Okay? All right. So uh, that's awesome and uh, incredible what you did. But uh, we're going to be in our resurrection series. Uh, we're in part two this morning. We're going to take this all the way up into Easter Sunday. Uh, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to begin in verse 12, if you want to make your way there. 1 Corinthians is in the New Testament. comes right after the book of Romans. And as you make your way there, just kind of set up uh, where we're going to be going this morning. As we're going to be looking at the rhetorical resurrection. In 1962, uh, Philip Dick wrote a book called Man in the High Castle, which some of us may be familiar with because of the Amazon Prime series, which made it uh, somewhat... Uh, more knowable uh, or, or more aware of. It, the book is interesting because it takes place 15 years after World War II, and the idea is, what if Japan and Germany won the war and they now had control of the United States of America? And so it kind of plays out in that scenario. And it, it, again, it, it's a great what-if scenario, and I think we like what-if scenarios. I know at least we as men like what-if scenarios, you know, when we're fixing things, well, what if we try this? Or when we're driving somewhere and we don't exactly know where we're supposed to go, well, what if we try going that way? We like what-if scenarios. We live by the Jim Carrey motto, you know, you're telling me there's a chance. I mean, that's what if. What if we did this? What would happen? Well, what if wasn't invented by Philip Dick with uh, the man in High Castle? It wasn't invented by men. It was actually invented by God as he gave Paul a what-if scenario to play out. And so Paul uses a lot of rhetorical questions. If you're familiar with any of his letters, well, he'll put up a question to bring a, a thought into the mind of the readers and those who are receiving. The point of rhetorical is to produce an effect or deeper thought on a subject rather than seek an answer. So there's a man in the high castle and in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 12 through 19, Paul has the man in the occupied tomb. And so we're going to begin in verse 12. Paul is writing to a church in Corinth. The church has a lot of issues. The city of Corinth was a very important city within the Roman Empire. At the time when Paul would be writing the believers here, it was the chief city of Greece, both commercially and politically. The people of Corinth were impacted heavily by the philosophies of the Roman Empire, the, the pursuit of Gnosticism, which is the pursuit of knowledge. They were impacted by idolatry. The temple, or the, the city itself, had several temples around. One of the, the two main ones was one of Aphrodite, who was the goddess of love. To the north of the city stood a temple for the god of healing, and in the middle of the temple, uh, city was the temple for Apollo. So Corinth was this city that had heavy immorality. It was heavily impacted by the Greco-Roman philosophies and ideologies and religious views. It was a culture in which Corinth was beginning to plague the church. 
And so these ideas and philosophies and pursuits in the culture were beginning to find their way into the church, was impacting the believers. And so Paul is writing to the believers that they are to understand they live within the culture, but they are not to be impacted by the culture. Instead, as believers, we are to impact the culture to which we live in. And we see that this is our same calling for today. We are not to be impacted by the things of our world, but we as God's people are to impact the world with the message of Jesus Christ. And so as the culture began to impact the beliefs, their theological understandings began to become corrupted. And so Paul's letter here in 1 Corinthians is filled with instructions about worship and unity and understanding the work of Christ and understanding the way a believer should live. And so one of the issues that Paul turns to is the resurrection. And in chapter 15, it's sometimes known as the resurrection chapter. And we're going to begin in verse 12 and then we're going to walk through it together. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 12, here we go. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true, that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Again, this is a what-if scenario that Paul is understanding. He has come to understand, he's gotten the information, there are believers within the church who have accepted the resurrected Christ. But what they were failing to understand was the resurrection of the believer. And so Paul, in this portion of this chapter, is beginning to play along. It's apparent that not everyone has fallen into this belief system, but there are some within the church who do not believe that the believer will be resurrected and that this life is all there is. And so it's causing some confusion in the church as a whole. Because as we mentioned last week, our view of the resurrection impacts every aspect of our life. If the resurrection loses its good news message, which we dealt with last week, then we will have a lack of good news in our hearts. If the resurrection loses its power, then we will have a lack of power in our own life. If the resurrection loses its meaning, its good news, and its power, it is only a sad story, and that is all. Without the resurrection, there is no reason to submit to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But with the resurrection, it should change everything in our life. And this is what Paul is driving home here in these verses. In verse 12, he says, If Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, which he's drawing from what we looked at last week in the previous verses, and the evidence of Christ's resurrection of those who have have witnessed him, who he appeared to. But he says, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then there is no resurrection of the dead. So Paul is playing out these eternal ramifications of a non-resurrected Christ, meaning he's still in the tomb. The language in verse 12 of chapter 15 lets us know that what these believers are believing concerning the resurrection is absolutely absurd to Paul. Paul is trying to wrap his mind around the stupidity of the belief that they are holding within the church. All the believers believe this. They believe Christ resurrected. What they were struggling to believe in is that Christ's resurrection had any impact on their life or the lives of mankind. 
That is the problem which Paul is addressing with these passages. So he brings up the rhetorical situation throughout verses 13 through 19. M. Taylor points out that Paul's, Paul's argument is to deny the resurrection of the dead is to deny the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of dead is linked inextricably or inseparably to Christ's resurrection and His full humanity. And apart from Christ's resurrection, there is no hope of eternal life. So what Paul is doing and what we don't pick up is he's actually attacking this Greco-Roman mentality which began to corrupt and sleep into the church. We're all in danger of doing the same thing when we allow our American culture to impact our understanding of what God's Word actually says. And so we begin to corrupt the Word of God, and instead of hearing the truth, we make it into what we want it to say according to the culture we live in. This is what Corinth is doing. They're changing the Word of God to fit their own needs and their own cultures. In the Greco-Roman world, the belief was once you were dead, you were non-existent. Matter of fact, there was no religion in the world at this time outside of the Jewish belief system, which had a form of resurrection. In the Roman world, everybody knew people who died didn't come back to a bodily life. And so Paul is trying to remove this cultural upbringing, this cultural understanding, and replace it with the truth of God's Word and a Christ understanding. So he poses a situation in two different places, in verses 13, and then again the same rhetoric situation in verses 15 through 16. So verse 13 says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Verse 15, he says it just a little bit different way. We're even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He, was raised, that he raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And what Paul is doing is he is taking this belief system that they would have grown up with, that the body is evil. And so when we die, the soul is free from the body. So to return to the body would be to return into prison. But Paul's argument is this. If we deny the, the effect that the dead are raised, then we deny the cause that Christ has been raised. And so this is the argument the Holy Spirit has led Paul to use. And we learn a couple things through the rhetorical. Christ resurrected to resurrect. This is what Paul is driving home in verses 13 and verses 15 through 16. Christ resurrected to resurrect. The understanding of the resurrection is, is through the rhetorical and is amplified in verse 15. If there is no resurrection of the dead, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ, whom He did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. Paul is saying if, if we don't resurrect, then Christ didn't resurrect. And if Christ didn't resurrect, then all those who said they saw Christ and He appeared to them, they were lying about God. The we refers to the apostles and those who have testified about the risen Lord and the promise of the resurrection in which they placed their faith in Christ. So Paul's playing along. He's condemning himself under the terms of the law about giving a false witness, that you shall not give a false witness to your neighbor. Proverbs chapter 19 says a false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will not escape. And what is the lack of escaping? It's the wrath of God to which we have placed our faith in, that Jesus Christ was sacrificed for our sins. They placed in him tomb, but he resurrected meaning that God accepted His sacrifice, and by our faith in Christ, we can be completely forgiven. The proper reading in verse 15 and 16 in, in the Greek is, if God does not raise the dead, then God has not raised Christ either. And this is what the believers are believing. 
But if Christ is not resurrected, then it impacts all of Christianity. Because if Christ is not resurrected, then those who have placed their faith in Christ have died. They have perished. They will not receive eternal glory. That means Christianity would then just be a system of good advice telling us how to live good moral lives. Moral lives. But the Bible, the gospel, is not a book to make a political stand. It's not to promote ethical values. It's not to tackle moral issues or even develop a healthy social structure. If this is all we make the Bible to be, and I know some churches do and some preachers do, then we've missed the power of the resurrection to which Paul is pointing the Corinthian believers to. It also means that nothing we say can be trusted. And nothing we do can be trusted if all we make the Bible is about making a political stand or developing social or ethical issues. It's not about that at all. Yes, the gospel will impact those things, but it is about the power of the resurrection that Jesus Christ satisfied the wrath of God. And we have placed our faith in that so we can receive eternal salvation. Christ died. That can be historically proven. He lived in the time that the Bible says He lived. But if He did not rise, then there is no forgiveness of sins, and His death is ineffective. And that means all of us here are now standing underneath the judgment of God, and all of those who have fallen asleep or have died have died in a false hope. The resurrection of Christ tells us that Christ came to save the lost and bring that which was dead in sin back to life. The second rhetorical that Paul goes after in verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised and our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Paul returns to that word vain, which is actually found several times throughout chapter 15. The word vain means empty, pointless, useless, void of meaning, without substance. If Christ did not resurrect and his followers do not resurrect, then all the preaching about the resurrection is meaningless. It has no point. Not only that, those who have placed their faith in the gospel and power of the resurrection is pointless. And so what Paul is doing is playing along to point out that Christ resurrected to give purpose. The purpose we now have because of our faith in the resurrected Christ and what that means for our eternal salvation and the security is the message we preach and we understand and place our conviction that it is fully valid and it is credible for all. Instead of being without effect or vain, it is essential to living today and into eternity. The word preaching there doesn't just refer to the proclamation of the message, but it also refers to the content of the message. We are proclaimers that there is forgiveness to be found from a holy God because His only holy Son died and rose again. And when we preach and proclaim Christ, we preach and proclaim the resurrection because it is essential to the gospel message. It is the resurrection of Christ that makes the gospel good news. Without it, we should live our lives in a carpe diem mantra. Seize the day. If there's no resurrection, then we should take the philosophy that Ecclesiastes points out to it. It's the final conclusion in the last couple of verses of Ecclesiastes. That everything is meaningless. It's all vain. It's a chasing after the wind. We should eat, drink, be merry, and just die and be over with it. But because Christ resurrected, we have a new purpose. We have a new purpose for living. We've heard it preached. We've accepted it and received it. We've placed our faith in it, 
faith in it. Now we have an eternal purpose, all because of the resurrection of Christ and the promise that since He resurrected, one day we will resurrect into a new body as well. It's a reminder that the purpose that this life isn't it. And so we have yet to re- if we have yet to receive the resurrected Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, what Paul points out is that we're lost. And so we who have accepted the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we are purposed to tell people who haven't. That's one of the purposes that, that Paul lays out throughout his letters. He also hammers it home in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If there is no resurrected Christ and we, and we have put our faith in His resurrection, that He is sitting at the right hand of the Father and He's going to return one day, but if it's, if it's not true then all of our faith, all of our actions, all the money we spend, all the time we gather at church during coronavirus season is worthless. It's meaningless. It holds no power. It's only a delusion that we have concocted in our head to help us sleep better at night. But, Paul says, he has. Your faith is not futile. It is not meaningless. It is not worthless. Christ resurrected so that we might be found and forgiven. Verse 17, Paul says it, the still in your sins. It, it's without a faith in the resurrected Christ. Without Christ coming out of the tomb in what we refer as Easter means that we are still guilty before a holy God and we are under the penalty of our sin, the wrath of God. That's what Paul is trying to point out. If you are still in your sins, then what you've placed your faith in has not saved you from the wrath of God that is going to come upon you on the day of judgment. It means that we and the Corinthian believers are separated from Christ. We are alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. We're strangers to the covenants of the promise. And we have no hope without God in the world. But because Christ has resurrected, Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, but now in Christ you are ones who are far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. A faith in Christ without a resurrected Christ is fruitless and meaningless. But because Christ is alive by our faith, we are found in Him and we are forgiven by Him before God. Paul goes on in verse 19, If Christ, in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Christ resurrected to give hope. So we can study the Word of God, we can study Christ's life, we can apply the principles of the Bible, but if all we're doing with the Word of God is studying and gaining knowledge, then Paul says we are a miserable group of people. It isn't that Christianity doesn't provide a positive moral compass. It isn't that Christ's teachings don't impact social ethics in a positive light. It isn't that we are not ambassadors for morality and ethics or even a religion. But most important, we are ambassadors of the power and the meaning of the resurrection. But the world isn't hearing that. They're hearing Christians take political stance and promote different worldviews. Here's what the Bible says. We preach Christ. Period. And our understanding of Christ and what He has done, that will impact our political views. That will impact our ethical stances and our mentality and our worldviews. But we preach Christ. Christ and because of the resurrection we do not have to be afraid of preaching Christ because we know there is power it saved us so we preach a faith in Christ brings forgiveness and eternal hope 
The Bible lays out in Christ, not in ourselves, but in Christ we are saved. In Christ, our sins are forgiven. In Christ, we have been justified before holy God. In Christ, we have been clothed with the perfect righteousness of Christ. In Christ, we have been given eternal hope of eternal glory in heaven. And so though we may suffer in this world, we may be persecuted for what we believe in Christ, we know that Christ has given us life and we can have it abundantly. Because of our faith in a resurrected Savior, we know no matter what we go through, the sufferings of this present time are not worth worth comparing with the glory that is to reveal to us. In Christ, we know that this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So in Christ... By my faith in Christ and His resurrection, I have a hope for today, I have a hope for tomorrow, and I have a hope for eternity. And so we are to live in that hope and preach that hope to a lost world. When the world looks at the church, when the world looks at believers, they should see a people in every circumstance, no matter what is going on in the world or on the news or is being transmitted by shaking hands, we have hope no matter what. That's what the world should see. And that's what the world should hear. We are loved by a God and have come to know the God who loves us through Christ. And we know nothing, nothing can separate us from God's love. And This is our hope. This is the gospel we preach. And this is what the world needs to hear in a time of fear. Man, this is a great platform right now to preach the message of the resurrection people are scared of the unknown and what they cannot control what a great opening see we none of us did to control how much time we have on this planet none of us did to control what kind of illnesses or infections our bodies get but We can know without a shadow of a doubt we're going to go to heaven no matter what comes upon us on this planet because Jesus Christ is resurrected and He sits at the right hand of the Father interceding for those who belong to Him. Jesus Christ came to die for our sins and the sins of all mankind. He did just that. He rose again. And by our faith in Him, we are given forgiveness from the Father. It's through this premise and this rhetorical idea that C.S. Lewis wrote one of his more uh, popular phrases in the book, Mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis writes, I am trying to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Him being Jesus. That I'm ready to set Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept His claim to be God. There's one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of a guy who says he is a poached egg or he would be the devil of hell. And You must make your choice. Either this man, Jesus, was and is the Son of God and the resurrection revealed that, or else he is a madman or something worse. So you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and call him a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. That's the resurrected Lord. 
John McDowell goes a little further in his book, More Than a Carpenter. He says, as we gather here this morning, we have three options when it comes to Jesus. He's either a liar, he's either a lunatic, or he is Lord. And if Jesus was a liar, then he was also a hypocrite because he told others to be honest, whatever the cost, while he himself taught and lived a colossal lie. If he was a lunatic, he showed no signs of it to those closest to him. And he spoke some of the most profound sayings ever recorded. He therefore cannot be a liar or a lunatic, which means the only other alternative is that he was the Christ, the Son of God, as he claimed. And this is what we must make a choice about when it comes to Jesus Christ. Is he just a good story? Is he something we like to sing about? Or is he truly resurrected and has that changed us? Do we live our life in such a way that Christ's resurrection has given us hope and purpose? The resurrection revealed Jesus' power over life and death. It revealed a pathway to God not based upon our good deeds, praise the Lord on Christ. Yes, Jesus' lordship over our life will impact other things, but it is meant to give us hope and eternal life. So you may be here this morning and you need to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You may have heard the story, you may have been in church numerous times before and heard about the resurrection, but you have not personally confessed Him as your Lord and Savior. You have not accepted the gift of forgiveness. If you have not, The Bible says you are still in your sins and you will be eternally separated from the God who loves you and has fought for you. But God has brought you here in this moment to change that, to change your destiny, to change your course of eternity by accepting Jesus Christ. It begins by acknowledging that you're a sinner. You do things that you're not proud of. You do things that you don't share openly about with other people. You do things that you like to keep in the closets. Those are sinful things, things we want to keep in the dark. Things we're ashamed of. That's what sin does in our life. It makes us want to hide. But God knows everything about you. Every detail of your life. He knows everything you're proud of and everything you're ashamed of. And He loves you so much. He sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to live a life that you and I couldn't. He died a death that we couldn't. And He rose again that we couldn't. And if we place our faith in Him, the Bible says we will be eternally forgiven and eternally saved. One day we will resurrect into glory with Him. And if you're here this morning and you've yet to accept that gift that God lays before you, I'm going to ask Mike to come down. And you just come down and tell Mike, one of our elders, I want Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Maybe you're here this morning and you've already accepted this gift, but you know you haven't been living it out. People are not seeing the hope that you have found as you come in contact with them. So yeah, maybe we're not going to shake hands, but as we go out and leave this place, one thing we are to give people is hope. And that's because the hope that's in us. We're going to come to this time of invitation. I'm going to ask Mike to come down, and I'm going to lead us in prayer. This is time to respond. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for loving us and taking care of us. Thank you for everything you do. Thank you, Lord, for the promises of your word that they stand true no matter what. And Father, I just pray right now in this moment, that if anyone here does not know you as their Lord and Savior, Father, that they would have the courage to come down and let it be known they want to be saved, they want to become your child. Father, if there's someone here this morning that has been living in so much fear because what the world keeps preaching at us, Father, forgive us. You have not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of sound mind. So help us cling to your promises more than we cling to the fears of this world. 
I thank you for everyone who's here this morning, Father. And let us leave this place when we leave here in a little bit, going out proclaiming the hope and the purpose that we have found in you and that it, let it be seen and proclaimed and preached that it has truly changed us. But thank you for this day. Thank you for everything you're doing. Father, we come this time of invitation so we're not just hearers of your word, but we are now doers. We're responding to what you've laid upon our hearts by the power of your spirit. Forgive me if I failed you in any way. But Lord, once again, I thank you for being our God who loves us. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen.